You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that really means is that I'm not going to be offering the basics of meditation and instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to uh, include basic meditation instructions. We've been going through the Manual of Insight, which is the new translation of the Mahasi Sayadaw text on Karnaka Samadhi, or Momentary Concentration and Meditation. And uh, tonight I was going to talk about lessons to learn from those who take the vehicle of tranquility to enlightenment. Um, So what's interesting about, I think, being in this time in the West is that most of us are trained in some form of noting strategy, which is this momentary concentration, insight meditation. Most of us have not gone through a process of developing a high level of concentration before moving into the insight practice. One of the reasons I think for this in the West is that um, if you have to spend a long time and a lot of effort to develop concentration, you'll get the fruits of concentration practice, but you won't get insight fruits. And so uh, going in the other direction where you have just uh, immediate access to insight uh, concentration, uh, insight practice then leads you to a place of uh, understanding what the transformative uh, possibilities of meditation are, and so maybe be more supportive of you continuing in the practice rather than attempting just to still the mind with a concentration practice. Um, in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse that the Buddha gave on how to do Vipassana meditation, it typically begins with here, quiet, secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, the bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Whatever exists herein of material form, feelings, perceptions, formations, consciousness, he sees these states as impermanent, as suffering, as a disease, as a tumor, as a barb, as a calamity, as an affliction, as alien, as disintegrating, um, as void, as not-self. So here we're talking about sitting and noticing the impermanent nature of things, that things are suffering, that things are not-self. So the three characteristics. So you begin this exploration uh, of the process of being uh, and examine them through these three filters. The Pali passage explicitly states that one who achieves jhana enters the first jhana as a precondition for practicing insight. After one emerges from jhana, one immediately practices insight by observing only those phenomena that are present in the first jhana. The same is true for the other fine material and immaterial absorptions. So if you were to take this traditional path as a way into insight meditation, then the objects of meditation become the fruits of jhana practice. So if you uh, look at the nature of the first jhana, what you're talking about is you apply your attention uh, to the object of meditation, you sustain your awareness of that object of meditation, you notice if rapture arises, which is this engagement with the object of meditation to the exclusion of all other objects. You'll notice that a sense of pleasantness arises in the body. Sukha is the Pali word for that. And then the mind settles and becomes one-pointed on the object of meditation and then you neither need to apply or sustain your awareness of it. The mind settles into this place of one-pointedness. Then when, the, when you come out of that place of one-pointedness, you can begin to examine uh, those uh, qualities as if they were there. 
or um, coming out of uh, the jhanic state, you review the, the different qualities that made up the experience of jhana. If you're unable to enter into a jhanic state, then what you may notice is that you don't have access to those uh, 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 qualities to investigate in insight practice. Um, anybody here had the uh, jhanic experience before? Are you aware of? One-pointedness? Right. So you put your attention on a particular object, you, and you stay focused. Right. Isn't that just uh, an everyday occurrence sometimes? Like, well, it's a highly concentrated state, jhana, and tends to be quite blissful in it, in, as one of the characteristics of it. So it's different than doing an exercise or a chore. Right. I have a question. So you're, what I'm hearing you say is that as an alternative to developing concentration, you can just start with insight practice. Right. But wouldn't you first need to cultivate the skill of concentration to be able to do insight practice? The mind's going to be all jumpy. Right. I've always looked at it like concentration is the prerequisite skill for anything. Um, in the description of uh, Karnaka Samadhi or momentary concentration insight practice, in the noting practice, you bring your attention to something where you simply let your attention be drawn to something. So you're not applying your attention, you're simply letting your attention be drawn to something and then you're noting it so you know that that's where your attention is, which is the mental aspect, and then you soak into the sensing experience of it. And in that moment of noting, if the mind is pure from the hindrances, then that's a sufficient amount of concentration. And then in the repetition of the noting, you develop a momentum of concentration that hopefully will uh, uh, create uh, uh, the same intensity of concentration that you would have developed if you started first with uh, the, the jhanic side of things, or the concentration side. I, under, I, hear, I hear that, but if you were trying to teach someone how to meditate, doesn't it seem like they wouldn't have the skill required to jump right into insight practice? Well, I did um, find in, in my own teaching practice that very often people don't have enough uh, base level of concentration to do the noting practice. Mm -hmm. So um, I do teach a separate uh, concentration practice to get people up to the level of where they can do the the noting practice, but not uh, so much so that they're into jhana. So an uh, access uh, concentration uh, is useful. And um, I was, I've often taught a lot of Shinzen Young's techniques, and I find that um, a lot of people don't have a sufficient level of concentration to do the technique, and so they, the, it just becomes agitating for them to try it. Uh-huh. Did, no, did you finish what you were saying to Michael before I... Um, good enough? Oh. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm confused by this too, because if, uh, I think Blake, you know, gave a talk when you were away one time and talked about the three <clears throat> modes of meditation, you know, the concentration, the method, and the insight. Right. And um, I, I think I mentioned this to you a couple of, of sessions ago, that I... I, um, it's relatively easy for me to do the concentration or focus on my breath and I don't basically do that every day at work and, and I do it for 15, 20, 25 minutes and I really feel refreshed mm -hmm. and it's easy for me to do the metta. I, I find it almost impossible to do these insight things that we're doing. So relative to Michael's question about starting with the insight, it seems like it backwards for me too. Right. But I don't know whether that's just my personal experience and I'm a complete outlier, but I'm having a monstrous time with the inside things, whereas the other two seem easy Seem easy and affect the changes that I want to have happen to me with meditation, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of my anxiety and suffering and everything. So I'm so, here because I'm, I'm striving to find the insight that you talk about, right. but it is elusive for me personally, whereas the other, whereas the concentration and the menta are lovely. 
the, how about the two of you? Is that, um, that, is that I can, I can do both. I can do the inside. You can. Like that, I can get concentrated doing that. Like you're much the most, with, with the, the, within like 10 to 15 minutes of practicing that, I can. Mm-hmm. For me, I have, uh, it's very easy for me to do concentration and insight. As a matter of fact, when I'm lazy, that's all I want to do. Insight or concentration? Insight, concentration, and insight together. I always start off with, well, I follow George's. So, 10 minutes of breathing and then counting and then going into insight. It's also easier for me now just to go directly into insight as well. Metta is incredibly difficult for me to access, even after a concentration exercise. It might be a little easier, but it's, <laughs> I think it's different for everybody. Right. So everybody's conditioning is different, so everything, uh, the, the practice resonates differently based on that conditioning. I will say, though, that after going on a retreat, like, that was super motivating to me. And it sparked something that made me want to do the insight more, and I focused on it, and it just, it just happened. But I don't think that would have happened if I hadn't gone over to So then maybe there, there's an answer to see if you can schedule a retreat for yourself at some point. Well, I did. Uh, when was it last year? It was the one at uh, Josh Retreat, but uh, you know, with Noah and, and the group. But I don't think that was insight oriented. Um, it's a four foundations retreat, but it, yeah. Memorial Day weekend it was a two-day retreat, so it's unlikely that you had enough time in retreat practice to get anywhere. Usually on a retreat, it's the, the first two days you're just settling in, and then, then the practice comes out of the next few days. So I, you, you're right in suggesting that I tend to teach a 10-minute breath awareness concentrating practice at the beginning of my insight meditation periods because we're all householders and we're engaged in the world and the mind gets very scattered that way and so then you intentionally focus the mind and then go into insight practice but this is a kind of hybrid uh, practice uh, in in um, access concentration means that you have a sufficient level of concentration that you can either go into uh, jhana or you can go into insight practice or let's say metta as well. I tend to teach metta jhana as a practice because it's in some sense killing two birds with one stone. Bad metaphor maybe for metta, but... (laughs) (coughs) You're concentrating the mind and at the same time developing the capacity for kindness. Um, which I like. Um, In Vipassana uh, jhana, you're simply developing highly concentrated states. In metta vipassana, because there's always an inclination toward kindness, it's a limited uh, set of uh, jhanic states that you can get into. For instance, in metta jhana, you can't go beyond the third jhana because you're always inclining toward kindness then the fourth jhana is equanimity, where there's no inclination one way or the other. So you have to abandon the intention for kindness in order to get into the fourth uh, vipassana jhana. Um, does that make any sense? So in vipassana jhana, the first uh, jhana is five levels. You, know, you apply your attention, you sustain it, uh, you watch for the arising of uh, piti or rapture and then make that the object of meditation you notice that sukha arises in response to the rapture sukha or bliss and then the mind settles and becomes one pointed and you've entered in the first jhana which is a an altered state of mind be it outside of or, ordinary uh, conscious awareness this the first jhana is unstable so you're bouncing in and out of it and then when you drop deeper in uh, where you no longer have to uh, apply or sustain your attention, then you've landed in the second jhana, which is characterized by rapture, bliss, and one-pointedness. After a while of being there, the the 
active nature of the rapture becomes too much and you settle further into simply one-pointedness and bliss. So that's third jhana. If you're doing a metta practice, then you have to let go of the intention or the inclination toward kindness and then you settle into the fourth jhana, which is one-pointedness and equanimity. So in a traditional way of describing Vipassana or insight practice, particularly from the, the passage of the Satipatthana Sutta, you first enter into this highly concentrated state and then you move into insight practice in examining the characteristics of jhana through the lens of the three characteristics. That would be a description of that. Noticing that the jhanic state does not last, that it's impermanent, that it arises, that it's there while it's there, and then it passes away. Notice that there could be suffering around the, the wanting it to continue, particularly if it's blissful, and uh, not wanting it to end. Uh, but the mind scatters and you can't enter into the jhanic state, and so there's a kind of suffering that comes from that. And then who's actually doing it? What, what selfing activity is there? Who's the author, the owner, the controller of this? So sometimes in jhana practice, uh, in, yeah, in jhana practice, where you are applying your attention, it can reinforce that experience of self, that you are actually doing something or causing something to happen, whereas in the momentary insight uh, practice, momentary concentration insight practice, you are just letting your attention be drawn without directing it. So that may be an easier way into the insight around not-self, because if you're not intentionally directing your attention anywhere, who's doing that? What is, what is the nature of the experience of self? Is that making sense? The Pali passage explicitly states that one who achieves jhana enters the first jhana as a precondition for practicing insight. After one emerges from jhana, one immediately practices insight by observing only those phenomena that are present in the first jhana. The same is true for the other fine material and immaterial absorptions. So there are eight jhanas. Um, fine material are the first four and immaterial are the, set, the second four. Many other Pali texts describe the same method of practicing insight for those who take the vehicle of tranquility to enlightenment. They agree that one who achieves jhana practices by first entering any of the jhanas and then after emerging from absorption, observing the phenomena present in that jhana. On the other hand, no Pali text says that anyone practices insight by considering, pondering, or imagining phenomena. Keep this, in point, this point in mind as a guideline. The phrase as impermanent in the above passage, should not give anyone the false notion that it is possible to develop the first two types of knowledge, knowledge that discerns mental and physical phenomena, and knowledge that discerns conditionality by simply considering or pondering phenomena without seeing phenomena as impermanent and so on. Instead, one should infer that one cannot develop these first two insights without directly experiencing characteristics of phenomena. So uh, what uh, this passage is really saying is that we are not thinking, we are not engaged in a thinking process, we are engaged in an experiencing process. That it is the actual experience that we're addressing, not thoughts about what the experience might be like. Is that making sense? Purification of view means to see mental and physical phenomena as they really are. In order to develop this, those who achieve jhana and practice insight by observing jhanic phenomena must emerge from any fine material or immaterial jhana, uh, accept neither perception or non-perception, and then observe the jhana factors, such as initial application of mind and their mental factors, uh, such as mental contact, perception, intention, mind, and so on, in terms of their unique characteristics and functions. So mental contact, you have the capacity to sense, you have the object that can be sensed, and then they, when they meet, when they have contact, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises, and you know it through awareness that that's happened. Um, 
as we begin insight practice, either through tranquility or through insight first, what we're looking to do is to begin to tease apart all of these activities that happen to us in the process of knowing anything. Um, if you remember the conversation around inferential uh, insight, you don't need to experience every phenomena that you experience and know it in order to understand the nature of how these things happen. You can know one, have a complete experience of one sensing activity and, and then infer that the process that happened in order for you to understand that sensing experience happens in the same way as you understand any other sensing experience. Does that make sense? You following me on this? <clears throat> the, um, Can I ask? Sure. So, when the sensing experience meets the object? The consciousness of that sensing experience arises and you know through awareness that that moment of consciousness is happening. And then when the object is no longer in connection with the capacity to sense, then the consciousness of that sensing moment ends and awareness knows that. It would also know that it arose, that there was, it was there while it was there, and then it passed away. That's the impermanent reflection on that. Mm -hmm. would, um, would conditioning impact that? Well, you might notice that some things are pleasant and some things are unpleasant based on your conditioning. Um, you might want it or not want it based on your conditioning. You might recognize it or not recognize it based on your conditioning. We tend to recognize patterns of experience that we've experienced before. If we haven't experienced something before, then the mind can begin to churn and attempt to identify what it is. But once we know something, once we can recognize a pattern of experience, the whole process happens actually before it enters into awareness, into conscious awareness. Um, if you examine neuroscience, I love neuroscience in connection with all of this because the body-mind processes um, information at 11 million bits per second. That's the whole experience. But aware, uh, conscious awareness is only 16 bits. So it isn't possible to have a complete experience of 11 million bits per second if your capacity to experience is only 16 bits. So a, a lot of what we know about our experience is inferential. We, we never have the, the capacity to experience it directly. 16 bits out of 11 million bits per second is what we get to know. But uh, So we can infer from the, the operation, we can infer uh, the whole operation from examining pieces of it. It is impossible to hold more than one thing in the mind at a time in, in conscious awareness. So it, it is in some sense impossible to ever have the experience of 11 million bits per second. But what we can have is these snapshots of 16 bits per second and in examining small pieces of each sensing experience uh, infer that all sense the whole sensing experience operates as the total picture. Is that making sense? Um, but let's look at this list of... Um, in here there's a list. So if we were to talk about this um, developing insight into jhana, we would be talking about a mental activity more than a physical activity. One of the ways to think about these two ways of practicing tranquility, which is mostly mind or uh, the karnaka samadhi, the momentary insight practice, which is mostly body. Karnaka samadhi is really uh, engaged in the sensing process, so in the ultimate reality of sensing, and uh, jhana practice is really about noticing the, the mental factors that arise from meditation practice. So you could think of jhana as mind, and you could think of momentary insight practice as uh, a body-related practice. But if you look at the list of uh, these um, 
this is a venerable Sariputta um, entered jhana one by one in order. Immediately after emerging from each jhana, he observed initial application and, uh, and so on and understood their unique characteristics. So he understood the unique characteristics of these states. So remember the instruction is to focus on what's obvious and easy to bring your attention to. And as you continue your practice of meditation, what's obvious and easy becomes more and more. As your resolution uh, of peering, say, through the microscope of meditation at the body-mind activity, as you get more practice, you can tease out um, finer and finer experiences, more subtle experiences, and so the subtle experiences become uh, obvious and easy to work with, whereas in the beginning of practice you may not even have been aware that they were there. But to give you a complete list of the things that you might look for as characteristics of jhana, you would have the initial uh, application of mind, vitaka, so that's the placing. Sustained application of mind, vikara, so that's the sustaining of it. Everybody here is aware at the level of practice they're in that you can apply your attention somewhere and that you can make an effort to sustain your attention. The rapture, piti, is everybody familiar with the experience of piti, which is a kind of uh, often a vibratory energy that arises in the body. Uh, sukha, which is pleasure or bliss. Have you had that sort of arising of a pleasant experience? Uh, that is in reaction or is a feedback mechanism to PT. Mahasi in the text will say that actually what um, sukha is is the aspect of um, vedna which is pleasant. So a subset of vedna. Vedna is the pleasant, unpleasant or neutral experience of sensing itself. One-pointedness of mind so the mind settles and concentrated mental contact, so knowing that moment when the sense object meets the capacity to sense, a feeling which is Vedna, feeling tone, is the sensing experience itself, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Perception, perception is the thing that the mind makes the sensing into, and this is a conditioned response. So you're listening to the sound of my voice, uh, the uh, the perception of the, the words themselves is the recognition of the pattern or perception. Intention or urging, do you notice that as you're sitting that the mind may want to go somewhere else and that you have an intention to hold on to the technique that you're currently doing? Cognition is mind itself knowing that there's a mind state present there. Uh, desire to act, uh, determination, exertion, mindfulness, so awareness of the present moment, a balanced equanimity, and attention. So in insight practice related to jhana, these are the investigations. This list of different uh, qualities that would appear in the activity of jhana, do you have the capacity then to identify each of these and to examine them in the process of practicing. It is impossible for a fingertip to touch itself. In the same way, a particular consciousness cannot understand its own appearance, uh, presence, and disappearance. It is impossible for a particular jhana to understand itself. If two consciousnesses were to occur at the same time, one could understand the appearance, existence, and disappearance of the other. It is impossible for two contacts, feelings, perceptions, intentions, or consciousnesses to occur at the same time. They only happen one by one. Different consciousnesses cannot happen at the same time. So in the process of meditation, what's actually happening is you have an awareness of the experience of the present moment and in the next moment, you have uh, uh, an understanding of its uh, impermanence, you have an understanding of its uh, sense of self, you have an understanding of its sense of suffering, 
but it's it's the the conditionality that allows that to happen. Uh, the previous moment sets up the conditions for this moment. The n- this moment sets up the condition for the next moment, and you're watching this flow of present moment experience over and over again, and in in the present moment experience, being able to reflect on the experience that just happened. Is that making sense? Uh-huh. So, in, when the author is saying a consciousness, you could say an arising, is there interchangeable? Um, yeah, I could go with that. So you watch this flow of experience and you pay attention to these different aspects of experience. This is mind, right? This is the mind aspect of, of practice, which is related to jhana. In the karnaka samadhi aspect, or the momentary concentration insight way of practicing, you're, you're focusing more on the sensing experience itself. You could then come out of the sensing experience and, and investigate any of these aspects of it. So I sometimes uh, have done a triple noting practice in here. Have you been here for that? First you note for sensory clarity, then you note for feeling tone, then you note for the mind state itself, the third foundation. Why is it that it would be useful to understand this process of ultimate and conceptual reality? What is the main advantage of beginning to understand that this is how we experience everything. We have the sensing experience, the ultimate experience, and then we make it into something. The, one of the things about the human mind that's so amazing is that we can take the sensing experience and make it into a lot of different things that may not actually be an accurate reflection of what the sensing experience is itself. So we sense something and then we make it into self and world and if there's a lot of distortion in the way that we create the perception of self and the perception of world, we invite a lot of suffering because we take actions based on the distorted nature of how the mind has created the experience and that creates karma for us. So the, the closer we are to an accurate representation of what is actually happening, the ultimate reality, the better that our actions can be in, in relation to them. Do you ever find yourself taking an action or responding to a situation and the people that you're engaged in are knocked off balance because it, it doesn't make sense to them why you would respond in the way that you did? That would be one, one way to investigate it. The reason that they're responding to you, your response in a way that, that isn't making sense to them is because the way that they formed that sensing experience is different than the way you have, and they're not uh, meshing very well, not linking very well. Um, so we sense it, and then depending on the mind state, we create the world. And when you really begin to examine these creations, these mental formations that we make, whether they're distorted or not, they look real. Uh, They can be wildly distorted and look as real as something that was actually reflective of the conditions of the present moment. And if you're not actively engaged in mindfulness of the present moment and watching the process through which we make these things, we may not notice the distortion and then we're simply acting in the world from a very skewed uh, position. And then the consequences of that come back at us. I I often talk about uh, karma as the next set of choices that you get to to pick from. So you have the the set of choices that you have in this moment, you pick a, a choice for an action and you take the action and then the next set of choices that come from that action appear and you have a choice of a range of things that you could do there. Um, If you take an action from a mind that's uh, filled with anger, often the responses are very different than if you took an action from a place where the mind is filled with kindness. How do you track that 
that process from sensing into making the world, making the self. Can you see clearly what's there? Or is the conditioned response overtake you and then you're acting from this place of conditioning, really? Uh, Do you think uh, of yourself as an extraordinary, beautiful, remarkable human being or do you think of yourself in a different way? Uh, Do you think of yourself in line with what your capacities are now? Or do you think of yourself in an old version of what early conditioning caused to happen? I like to talk about attachment because um, John Bowlby's attachment because it uh, it describes how conditioning forms these mind states that tend to have such a dif- distorting effect on how we perceive ourselves and of course how we perceive the world. The world in Buddhism really means other people were herd animals. We live in social groups. So in in the working model we have of ourselves, the mind states are there. In the working model of other people, the way that we think of other people, the mind state in which we view them is there. So when we think of them, they arise in our capacity to sense, including the mind, including the mind state that we view them through. So if we think of somebody as particularly difficult, each time we think of them, the mind state that they're a difficult person arises and we see them, everything that they do, as difficult. But the action that they could take would maybe no different than an action that somebody you think is delightful takes. Yet when that person who you have the mind state of delight in witnessing them does the same thing that the difficult person does, you're delighted by it. Whereas when the difficult person does it, it's irritating and you don't want it, even though the action is very similar. Is that making sense? So what's so important to do in this practice of meditation, since we cannot experience all of this, all of these components at the same time, is to begin to try and experience the pieces that we can get at. And then know that in each moment of sensing, all of these pieces are active. And then in, in that way, have a complete experience. We don't need to have a complete experience of 11 million bits per second. We can't know that. We only need to have a complete experience of 16 bits, right? Manageable uh, to do that. Um, in, in order to track all of those, those aspects of mind, you really do need to be highly concentrated and come in and out of that. In the Karnaka Samadhi model, we just begin with Uh, paying attention to what's happening at the resolution that we have, what's obvious and easy to focus on. And then as we continue to develop the noting practice, we uh, develop a stronger and stronger level of concentration. But if what you find is that the mind isn't concentrating enough through just doing the Karnaka Samadhi, then some additional concentration practice is in order. Is that making sense? Um, what, what is the sign of being concentrated enough? Um, well, I would say that you can place your attention where you want to put it and you can keep it there without the, the whole rest of the body-mind pulling you away from it. So, for instance, the breath? So if you were to focus on the breath, that you're aware of the, the in and out of the breath and that you could keep your attention there. I like to define things Specifically, so I would say that if you could watch uh, the breath and count uh, at the end of the out-breath up and down to 10, so 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, continuously for 10 minutes without losing the count once, then that would be a sufficient level of concentration to do um, most of the insight practices. Um. I, I don't know that I think of uh, jhana practices spacious, particularly. It's it's narrowly concentrated, so it's a small object rather than a big one. Um, but it might might you might be using the word spaciousness differently than I would think of it. Uh, it just feels like something's on the tip of my tongue. I can't articulate, it, but I feel like 
and maybe I'm wrong, but jhana is more emptiness, insight more form. Okay. Um, jhana, the... Mind, and then uh, the karnaka samadhi is body. Yeah. Yeah. or while you were there? Well, Could be. No, while I was... And your instruction didn't include accounting, did it? No. I chose to count. Okay. Because I... Um, I tend to be able to uh, stick to the sensation better mm-hmm. than not counting. Okay. Good. Someone else? I had like all over sensation mm-hmm. um, that I could concentrate on. Good. But no bliss. No bliss, okay. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> so, in the last uh, Myanmar retreat, uh, it took three days of just really hard sitting to get into jhana. So, okay. just so you know, it's, it can take. I felt right when you started giving instructions, like, like I just went right there. Oh, great. That was kind of weird to me. But then Shinzen said that one of the people that he started practicing with, who's one of his contemporaries, trained himself to be able to drop into the third jhana pretty much instantly. Um, but that uh, most of his practice over the last 40 years has been hanging out in the third jhana and that there hasn't been a lot of insight that's come out of that. So he calls it the most pernicious trap in meditation, which is the bliss associated with concentration. So I did about two and a half years of this kind of practice, and and, uh, he said to me that I wasn't making progress, and I should do something else, go back to the Karnaka Samadhi. So that's what I did. Um, it, I'm, I'm offering this uh, approach so that you can contrast this this approach to the Karnaka Samadhi approach and see that the difference. I'm, and so I should probably emphasize my bias is totally in the direction of the Karnaka Samadhi, the momentary oh. concentration. I feel actually a little clumsy in offering this teaching because I don't do it very much. In organizing a daily practice, would you? recommend picking one and just sticking with it for a couple months or doing one one day, another another day? Um, In morning meditation, the way I've organized it, it's 50% metta, 50% insight, mostly because um, people have such a harsh way of carrying themselves, the way that they regard themselves is, is so painful that really changing that conditioning seems to be really important so that you want to get to a place where you're just holding yourself with this great tenderness all of the time and it makes it so much easier to go into the inside and actually view the, the conditioning. 
So if you've gotten to a place where you, you hold yourself with this great tenderness all of the time, then you can go all the way into insight. But I like this metta vipassana approach where you really develop metta so that it's a refuge when things get really difficult and unpleasant that you can pull into metta and, and allow the body-mind to reset and then come back out and go into vipassana insight. Suppose one was doing metta every morning and in the evening there was going to be another period of practice. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I just probably wouldn't combine them in one sit, although I might if it was a straight metta if it was straight metta jhana practice, then going into insight would be okay. I mean for the evening would you recommend doing concentration one night and insight the next or do a couple months of concentration, mm-hmm. a couple months of insight practice? What would be more fruitful do you think? Um, I usually combine them and do a little bit of, like, in a 25-minute sit, do 10 minutes of concentrating the mind and then go into Vipassana. The, you, you can really get very concentrated in the mind, but it, it, it is based on the present moment conditions, so it isn't as if it will last, right? It isn't like you can get totally concentrated now and, ha- and then the next moment's conditions will be affected by that. So it doesn't really serve except in the moment. That's making sense. So I'll often do 10 minutes of concentrating on the breath just to get the mind to quiet down and then go in, into Vipassana from there. Um, and that seems to work well for householders. But that would be more access concentration, not jhana. Right. If you wanted to go into jhana, I would go on retreat and do it on retreat. Or you could do self-retreat, but you know, it's going to, for most people, myself included, it takes a couple of days to get there. Mm. The last um, um, Myanmar retreat, it took about two and a half days of long sitting, like three-hour sittings to get into jhana. And then, then after that it was easy to get back in. But. And you're just focused on the breath, you're not counting the breath? In metta jhana it's focusing on the mind state of metta. That's the object, not the breath. So, And then the mind state itself becomes the, the PT. The mind state becomes the PT? Yeah, the mind state begins to turn into PT. And then you get these, I, I notice on the last retreat, these super intense blasts of bliss. And then that's your mind state. But I mean, really super intense. That's why I like the Metajana approach because it's when, when, in some sense once you have an experience of that level of intensity the sentimental approach to metta really never comes even close I don't understand that well if you're generating a, if you're attempting to generate a positive feeling state through thought which is what a lot of metta practices in the west then you generate a positive feeling but it doesn't come anywhere near the intensity of the bliss that arises from jhana. So when you're doing a metta jhana practice, the bliss that comes is pretty intense. So are you investigating the four? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Is no, it aversion? In, in, in metta, it's just metta. There's no insight. Okay. So I was doing a sit where I think you were. Okay. All right. So it's kind of like in a dry metta practice, you're delaying all the bliss for a long time, for years, so that it just hits you all at once. 
Well, I would say that the first year we went, I, I think nine of us went, and all of us got jhana on the first retreat. So, in a two-week retreat, everybody got into jhana. And you could actually, it was kind of fun to watch. Um, uh, we're on a metta retreat, and everybody's crabby and grumpy and irritated, and you can tell by their body language, since we're all in silence, that they're just having a really rough time, and then one after another you'd see drop and explode and then they would be walking around with this you know, intense uh, pleasantness which was in such a stark contrast to the, uh, the grumpiness of, of before and you'd see boom, boom, one after the other. So. That happens, is it, would you call that flow? Yeah, well these are pretty intense flow states. Yeah. Right, but I've I've experienced very, after sitting on retreat for four days, five days, I've experienced periods where I, I sort of go into a flow state. Right. I'm still conscious. Right, totally. And, but I'm, I'm observing the world in the present time. Right. And so there comes a blissfulness with that. Yeah, that's sukha. That's, that's sukha. sukha. Okay. Good. All right, thank you for coming. This is Deepening Your Practice, so I'm always advocating ways to deepen your practice. Retreat practice is one. I have some flyers out there for the New York retreat. Maybe take one. And uh, I also do morning meditation, which is a live conference call. Getting a daily practice going is a good way to deepen your practice. The, the flyer there has a, 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 a web address on it that you can try it out for a month and see if it's right for you. Uh, and no cost, and then it rolls into a monthly subscription. Um, uh, these classes are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna for this class is $20. Uh, I have a bow over there for cash, and I also take cards. If you'd also be so kind as to stack the chairs and stack the cushions, these uh, black safus go in the corner there. Those four get stacked and put against the wall there, and the chairs, if you stack them up, I'll, I'll put them away. Thank you. Thank you.